Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to page one. Genesis chapter one. As Alex mentioned, we're encouraging uh, families with young children who uh, maybe are having a little hard time uh, sitting for a long time. This spot over here to our, my right is a good spot uh, to perhaps uh, have your children. Uh, there's a wonderful challenge of having a growing church and the love of kids. Uh, kids are wonderful. What a gift they are. And we delight in them. Uh, and we want to serve our families And we want to serve all those that are around our families and with our families as well. So uh, let's, um, let's pray for one another and be gracious to one another. Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read this entire chapter uh, all the way through to chapter 2 and verse 3. Um, this is God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants, yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. 
to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, To every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus... The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. And that, dear church, is the Word of God. By which we know how the universe came into being. The Word inspired by the primary person who was there when it happened. Affirmed, as we saw last week, 
by no one other than and less than our Lord Jesus Christ and written down for us to study, to learn, so that we might worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord God Almighty, come and speak to us in these next moments through Your most holy and precious Word. Show us things that we need to see. And Father, if there are any here today who are straddling the fence, who are, have one foot in and one foot outside the faith, help them to know, O oh Lord, that there can be no neutrality. That if You are, then everything in our life must be surrendered with joy so that we might live in the fullness of life as intended by you. O Lord, come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis reveals to us that the eternally self-existent God who pre-existed before all that is, spoke the universe into being by His sovereign decree and His omnipotent, His almighty voice. And then He filled the universe both with beauty and bounty and then with order and purpose. And then he made man, male and female, to be the highest in dignity within his creation and to be the highest in rank over his creation. And what he made was very good. There is enough there I could sit down. And you have heard enough to bow and worship. We have just begun this series entitled Origins. Where does it all come from? Where did we come from? And why are we here? Last week I began to explain some of the reasons why we're doing this series. I gave you three of what I promised to be six reasons why Genesis. Uh, reason one, because Genesis introduces the true storyline of the Bible. Reason two, because Genesis is the foundation for a truly Christian worldview. And reason three, because Genesis confirms what we all know to be true anyways, that there is in fact a Creator God. Now today I'm going to combine three of those six reasons that I promised you into one. Uh, and that one reason is this. Why study Genesis? Because Genesis sets the moral compass for our lives. Genesis sets the moral compass for our lives. And it does this in three ways. Genesis tells us who our authority is. Genesis gives us some creation ground rules, and Genesis keeps us from what I'm calling moral inversion, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. 
So Genesis sets our moral compass in three ways. First of all, it identifies our moral authority in life. If there's one thing that's clear from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, it is that God reigns. It is that God is in charge. There is one single voice of authority that is sounding forth in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates and then He commands. And in fact, He creates by commanding. And God said, let there be, and there was. God creates, and immediately we are confronted with the wonder of who God is. God creates by mere commandment. Don't you wish you had that power? To create, to move mountains, to do this, to do that, by simply declaring it. Mountain move. House be built. Debt be gone. Your name ends on that one. <laughs> to have almighty power in your voice. I, I, I always delight in the story in Luke, I think it's Luke chapter 7, where Peter and the, the other apostles are out on the sea and they're, they're fishing and they're out there all night. They catch nothing. Jesus comes along and says to Peter, hey, cast the net on the other side. And Peter is scratching his head like, Jesus, I'm the fisherman, you're the teacher. Let me just do what I do here. But no, Peter, Peter throws the net on the other side. And Jesus, by a mere thought command, tells all the fish in the Sea of Galilee to jump into Peter's net. What does Peter do? He jumps out of his, the fishing boat, runs to the shore, falls at Jesus' feet, and says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Strange reaction. Jesus hadn't said anything about sin. All Jesus had done was show His omnipotence, His almightiness. Not even with a word, just with a thought. And all the seas, and all the fish, and all the birds, and all the livestock, and all the creatures of earth come into being and line up in obedience to Him. But Jesus not only created by command, as soon as the creation was done, He starts issuing commands. So that in verses 27 and 28, God creates man in His image. Male and female, He creates them. And God blesses them and then says, Be fruitful and multiply and till the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This is a blessing. So in one sense, what God is doing here is He is pronouncing a blessing and a promise upon us as human beings, but implied in the blessing is also a commandment. Human beings were to be fruitful and they were to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is a command from the Lord. And then in chapter 2 and verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and 
keep it. This implies commandment. This implies God is telling them where to go and what to do. And then in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is God the authority. This is God the lawgiver. This is our authority. Now, some may be hearing this or reading this and thinking, well, that's pretty petty of God. That seems pretty arbitrary and random for Him to say, hey, you can have eat from all these trees, but don't touch this one. And you may be wondering, what's up with that? The issue here is not the fruit of the tree. The issue is whether or not they would yield to His authority. This was a test this was a probationary moment. This was, this was a time when God said He declared something that maybe to their minds and hearts might have appeared random and arbitrary, but He was saying to them, I am Lord. I am in authority. I say what's right. I say what's wrong. You must obey. Even if you don't understand. Adam and Eve's test was not could they resist a piece of fruit, but would they be willing to live under authority? And as representative of the whole human race, would they obey God or not? What happens in Genesis 1 and 2 is meant to tell us who is governing the universe. In a Christian worldview, the first and really only question that matters is what has God said? The question is not what do I think? The question is not what would I like? The question is not what do I prefer? The question is not can we take a poll? The question is, what has God said? Humans are made to know and feel the authority of God in our lives. And so, Genesis sets our moral compass by identifying our moral authority. Secondly, Genesis sets our moral compass by giving us creation's ground rules. Many Bible students call these creation mandates. What it refers to are those, is that set of creation commandments and responsibilities that God put in place in the moment of creation. Not after the fall into sin in chapter 3. These are God's expectations of the human race in the brand new, perfect world that God has made. These are built by God right into the created order. 
as permanent aspects of life as God intended them to be. They are woven into the very fabric of God's creation right from the start. Before sin happened, before cultures happened, before anything happened, God established the ground rules. And they include, as we go through uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in coming weeks, we will see these in greater depth. But these Creation ground rules include respecting and valuing the unique dignity and sanctity of human life. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. It is a creation mandate that we recognize that and respect that in one another. Filling the earth. Ruling the earth to harness all of its resources for human good. To rule the animals. To work and tend the earth. To work six days and rest on the seventh. Marriage and marriage monogamy and marriage fidelity. Between one man and one woman for life. Marriage roles and responsibilities, and in the context of marriage, if given by God, procreation and the bearing of children. All of these appear in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall into sin. These are a part of God's created order. These are the basic ground rules of living in God's world. To quote my brother and fellow pastor Rick Butler, these are some of Genesis' premises. These are Genesis premises. These are the starting points. They're not cultural. They're not temporary. They're not provisional. They're not merely pragmatic to somehow or other curb human sinful behavior. No, they're a very part of the created world order. They are to the moral realm what the law of gravity is to the physical realm. These are the principles that get us started in life. They keep us firmly planted on solid ground and keep us from drifting who knows where. Genesis sets the moral compass of our lives. First of all, by identifying who our authority is. No one less than or other than the true and the living God. Secondly, by giving to us the ground rules for life in God's world. And then third, Genesis sets our moral compass by keeping us from moral inversion. Dear ones, you and I need to understand this. If we're going to see the world and reality as God does, and if we're going to understand what is going on in today's world from God's point of view. What, what is inversion? When something is inverted, it is upside down. It is the very opposite of what it is meant to be. Clothing inversion is if I were to wear my shirt on my legs and my pants on my arms. Food inversion is if I were to call mushrooms good and ice cream bad. Sports inversion is if 
I were to pull for the Sixers and against the Celtics. I have lost the crowd. <laughs> Music inversion is if I were to call Beethoven's work bad and the theme for Gilligan's Island good. It's now playing in your head, isn't it? <laughs> I thought about that this morning, that it would be cruel to use that illustration, but I used it. <laughs> Moral inversion is when I call good bad and bad good. When I condemn virtue as if it is a vice and approve of vice as if it is a virtue. Remember last week we talked about a watershed. That peak on a mountain from which rain flows downward in opposite directions. That ridge where if the rain lands on it, if it lands just to this side, the water goes there. If it lands just to this side, it goes there. Dear ones, what you decide about Genesis 1 decides which direction you go. You either go toward God in wonder and worship, or you go downward, ever downward, ever downward, into moral inversion and upside-downness. Say, Tim, where in the world do you get this? I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is not just Tim Shorey talking here. This is the clear teaching of God's Word. If you deny the existence of a Creator, God, and moral lawgiver, this is where things end up. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen.
for this reason. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. But it gets even worse. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And now the final indictment. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is moral inversion. The worst thing about What happens when people suppress the truth about God is not moral confusion. They just don't quite get it. Neither is it moral perversion. They do things that are unnatural or twisted. It is moral inversion. Humans and human cultures spin downward out of control into a moral decay so deep and so ruinous that they get to a point where they not only do these things, but they approve of, they applaud those who do them. This is profound moral bankruptcy. It's worse than bankruptcy. It's profound moral degeneracy where the bad is called good and the good is called bad. I need to pause here. I, I, I want to mention that the Bible's analysis of human beings is one reason why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible gets it. Right. You see, in the world, there are those who say that humans are basically worthless and accidents with no dignity or no worth, and yet we all know better. We are made in the image of God. The Bible says dignity. But then there are others in the world who say that humans are basically good. We know better. The wicked go astray from the womb, Paul writes. You see, the Bible gets this right. We as human beings are made in the image of God, and so we have dignity and worth. Whether we're believers or not, there is value stamped into us. And the Bible recognizes the uniqueness and the high rank of human beings on this 
planet in this world. The Bible gets that right, but it also gets this right, that human beings, though they have dignity, are full of depravity. And if God removes His restraining hand and His moral law from our hearts and from our conscience, we will do all manner of sin. And even worse, we will start standing and applauding the sin and condemning the the good. The Bible gets it. It nails it. Do not buy the, 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 the lie of evolution that says we're worthless. Do not buy the lie. The lie of those who, in a Pollyanna kind of way, say that humans are good. We have dignity and profound depravity. And when God removes His hand, when God turns us over to our sin, when in response to us suppressing the truth and holding down the truth about God, when God says, okay, you don't want me, here's what life looks like without me. And God turns us loose. 21st century world happens. Evil abounds and is applauded. And good is mocked and scorned and hated. Friends, Genesis 1 rescues us It rescues us from moral inversion. You're either embracing and living out Genesis 1, or you are living out some level of Romans 1. What you decide about Genesis determines your future. God in His mercy has given us Genesis 1 so that we would know right from the start that He is, and that He is lawgiver and judge, and that the only way to live a sane and sensible life in this broken world is to set our eyes on Him and follow Him wherever He leads. And all else is vanity. And all else is futility. And I want you to know here today that if you have been living a life that feels like it's been this downward, downward cycle into moral brokenness and ruinness, I want you to know that if you embrace this simple truth that God is, And that all that He says to us in His Word and through the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, is true. Then that life going downward can be reversed. We can reverse the inversion. And instead of going downward, can gradually but surely move forward and move upward by the power of God. There is transformation in this simple truth. God made you. God 
made you. I'm reminded of John Piper's words that have for decades now affected me and moved me. They're in your outline. You don't have to know, he writes, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. And here's one of those majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things that your life can be ignited by. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God, when you were in your mother's womb, was making you wonderfully and mysteriously and gloriously for Himself. Hang on to those majestic, simple, but glorious truths. And God will transform your life. Some of you, perhaps, either here or on live stream, maybe trying to straddle the fence, trying to play it neutral. Maybe you're one who says, you know what, I'm really agnostic. I don't not believe in God, but I don't believe in God. You're trying to play it neutral. The problem is, my friend, that you can't play it neutral. You can't play it neutral. If there is a God, He demands everything of you. And if in your mind you're thinking, well, I'm not sure there's a God, but there might be a God. If you really believed that there might be a Creator God, then my friend, there is only one logical and sane thing for you to do, and that is commit your life to finding out who He is and what He wants from you. Agnosticism and neutrality are illusions. You either embrace the truth. And you may even, it might be accurate to say, you even embrace what may well be true. That God exists. And you live that out and find this God who made you. Are you trying to straddle the fence? A lot of young people are nowadays. But you know what? An equal amount of old people are too. You can't play it neutral. Genesis 1 doesn't let you play it neutral. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Paul says later, or Paul, Elijah says later. I got my testaments mixed up there. 
choose you this day. Did I say Elijah? Joshua said that. I'm testing you. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. Joshua. Joshua said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make your choice. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled in your presence. We have heard from your word. We have felt the implications and the weight of truth upon our hearts and upon our consciences. It has made us both to tremble and to rejoice. Lord, please come to us day after day and week after week and show us more and more of your glory. For Lord, if if our hearts cannot be ravished and then satisfied in you, then what have we besides you? We long to see your glory. Father, we long that any who come under the sound of this truth, who are straddling the fence trying to play it neutral, that they will realize this cannot be done except at the great peril of their souls. Open eyes, open ears, and open hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I wonder if you would stand with me and let's repeat just the simple doxology in song. Um, I think a fitting response, a reminder um, that prayer for healing will take place in the alcove to my left and the explore class will take place down the hallway to the lounge. Let's conclude our worship by singing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.
To you be glory, eternal God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may your grace, your peace, and your power rest upon each and every one of us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.